Good morning, my sweetheart church. It's good to be with you in worship today. Many of you have been probably uh, have been praying for uh, Rich Jasper, one of our stalwart members, an elder of our church. He was in a moped accident on vacation, had a head injury, and it sounded very uh, concerning uh, at the time. You entered into a, a, some fervent prayer. We're grateful to report that your prayers have been answered. I spoke to Rich a couple of days ago, and uh, if all goes well, they will be flying back home um, this next Tuesday. Um, I did tell Rich when I talked to him that he ought to make sure that he stays in the hospital as long as he could because after he is well, his wife may want to kill him. <laughs> she told him to not ride a moped and he waited until she was in the shower and then rode a moped anyhow. So I think he's going to be hearing about this for years to come would be my, be my guess. So be careful, Rich. I want you to take a look at a picture up here. and We'll keep that up there for a little bit. I wonder if any of you recognize what that is. Those are some of the rocks that sit in the concrete beneath this very sanctuary. They were placed there more than 26 years ago by a bunch of Chapel Hill families who wanted their name to be a part of the foundation of this building. I wonder, are there any here today who put their stone in? So there's one, there's another. So... A handful of you. So we are grateful to you for your commitment to the generations that were yet to come. Take a look carefully in the corner. You see the name in the upper right-hand corner? See it? Nichols. John and Eldina Nichols. I want to talk about John Nichols for a moment. John was a pillar in this church. How many even know who John was? Only a handful of you. The rest of us, you have no idea what you owe to this man. He was a he was the chair of every building committee that we ever had since I've been your pastor. The building committee for our gymnasium and our education space, the building committee that built this sanctuary 25 years ago, the building committee that, that built uh, the gathering place and the youth center and the admin wing. Every one of them had John Nichols' name written all over it and literally underneath it. When I see his picture or I hear his name, I, I have a deep sense of gratitude for this man. It is largely due to John Nichols that I have a stage up here to, to stand on and have been preaching from that stage for the last 25 of my 35 years here. I feel like I owe John Nichols an incalculable debt, and I think we all do. I want you to take a look at a, a video here. That's the Sea of Galilee. And up there is the, that's Capernaum, and that's the Capernaum Synagogue. I've taught in that place ten times, and uh, if you notice the white facade, those white stones, those were constructed in the, the late fourth century, about the 300s. But if you look very carefully at a picture of the foundation, you see those black stones underneath there? Those are first century stones, first century black basalt stones. Which means, upon those very stones, Jesus preached the sermon that kicked off his ministry. We heard of that sermon back in chapter 4 when Luke tells us that Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath in the synagogue. That picture you just saw, that is the synagogue that Luke is talking about in our text this morning. And we are going to meet Capernaum's equivalent of John Nichols, the guy who built that synagogue that helped to launch the ministry of Jesus. And I think you're going to be surprised 
when you figure out who this guy is. Turn with me to Luke chapter 7. We're continuing in our journey through the gospel of Luke. John, John chapter, Luke chapter 7, starting with verse 1. Jesus has just finished his preaching of the Sermon on the Plain, which is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, but a little different. And so we pick it up with verse 1 of chapter 7. And after Jesus finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Remember a couple of weeks I was teaching about Jesus' uh, comments when he said, we must love our enemy. Remember I told you that it's the singular Christian teaching of Jesus. Not do unto others, but love your enemy. Only Jesus ever taught that. And Jesus, of course, did it. That was the summation of his ministry. I also told you at the time that you could easily transpose the words Romans for enemy. And the listeners at Jesus' time would have understood exactly what he was saying because they were a people under occupation. These Jews had enemies, and they were the Roman soldiers who were living in and bringing them under subjection. And oftentimes we know the, the Romans were cruel and demeaning and discourteous and, and all kinds of awful things toward them. But not always. In fact, the New Testament reveals that there were some Romans who treated the, Rome, the Jewish citizens kindly. And this guy was one of those. He was a centurion, which means he was a commander of a hundred men. It was a very important, very powerful position. It was the heartbeat of the, the Roman army was the centurion. There were 60 centurions in, in every Roman legion of about 6,000 people. So it was an incredibly important role, very influential guy. And, and Jesus was approached, interestingly, by a group of religious leaders, Jewish elders from Capernaum, who came to make an appeal on behalf of this Roman centurion who lived in their town. That in itself is a pretty remarkable thing. They said to Jesus, he's a good man. He, he loves our nation. Let's just pause there for a moment. This Roman centurion loves our nation. 
That would be like a group of Ukrainian pastors saying of some Russian captain, he loves the Ukrainian people. How could that be? It is a remarkable statement. But it turns out that there were, in fact, many Romans who had grown tired of the idolatry of the Roman world. The massive idolatry the, uh, and, the, uh, and the immorality that went along with their, uh, their Roman gods, their Roman religions. There were some Romans who were sick of it. They were immersed in that and they wanted something more. And they were drawn to the monotheism of Judaism. They were drawn to the morality of the Jewish faith. And these these non-Jews, these Gentiles, were called God-fearers. They didn't convert because, for one thing, they would have had to be circumcised to be converted, and Romans considered the act of circumcision to be barbaric. It cut down on the Roman conversion, but they admired the Jewish faith. They admired and even worshipped Yahweh, the monotheistic God of the Jews. So maybe this centurion was a God-fearer. We're not sure, but we do know that he treated the, the citizens of that region that he was responsible for with such kindness that he could say he loves our nation. And more than that, it turns out he put his money where his mouth was because they went on to say he is the one who built us our synagogue. He didn't just help. He built our synagogue, they said. He was their John Nichols. He, he laid the stones upon which Jesus preached his inaugural sermon. That synagogue in Capernaum became the base of Jesus' incredible ministry. I wonder... I couldn't help but wonder, did Jesus know this guy's name? I bet he did. I mean, I, did he have a sense of gratitude towards this, this Roman for the part that he had played in helping him launch his ministry? I bet he did. Well, now it was the centurion who needed help from Jesus. And here's the deal. He, he had a beloved servant, and the way that the Greek talks about it, it's more like a, a son, a, a beloved son to him that that was on his deathbed, and the centurion wanted Jesus to heal him. But he, he also knew that it wasn't very likely that he would get help. I mean, what Jewish rabbi in good standing would be willing to help any Roman occupier, any Roman soldier? And so he thought, well, I'm going to send my most influential Jewish friends to talk to him. So he conscripted the, the elders of the area, the Jewish elders who were the leaders of the religion and the community, and he said, would you go and speak on my behalf? And they were happy to do so. And so they come to him and said, Jesus, this guy, he loves, his, loves our nation, he needs some help. And Jesus said, fine, I'll help him. So he starts towards their house. But think about that. Talk about scandal. Imagine what the Pharisees would do with that. If they got news that, that Jesus had gone to the house of a Roman centurion of all things. Well, he never had a chance to scandalize them in that way, at least. Because he never had the chance to get to his house. Because before Jesus arrived, a group of friends from the centurion came to him. Notice that, first of all, it was Roman or it was Jewish elders that came on his behalf. But now, it seems it's a more intimate circle. It's a group of friends. And they come to Jesus with an entirely different message. They say, Jesus, through, through him, the, the, the centurion says, Jesus, please don't come to my house. I am not worthy for you to come to my house. Instead, I would just ask you, just say the word right there where you are, 
And I know that if you do, my servant will be healed. So Jesus stops in his tracks. He apparently did exactly that. And when the friends returned back to the centurion's home, they found his beloved servant healed, astonishingly. There are two things about this remarkable pagan Roman centurion who appears in Luke's gospel that I think are worth noticing. His perspective and his faith. His perspective and his faith. First of all, his perspective. Did you notice the difference in approach between the first group that came to Jesus from him and the second group that came from him? That first group, the Jewish elders, they, they came to plead with Jesus to help him because they said he is worthy of your help. Do you see that? He is a good man. He loves our nations. He's, he, he, they, he is worthy of this. He had treated the Jews kindly. He had worshipped Yahweh. Most importantly, he had made a huge donation to their building campaign. Jesus ought to help them, he said, they said, because he's a good guy, because his heart is in the right place, because he deserved it. He was worthy. That's what the religious leader said. Then come his closer friends, I dare say. The second group come to Jesus, and his closer friends, they say exactly the opposite to him. Speaking through him, they, he says, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to come, have you come under my roof. I'm not worthy. The elder said, he is a worthy man. He deserves it. He said, I am not worthy. He said, it is clear you are a prophet of God. You are a holy man. I have done horrible things in my life. I'm not even Jewish. I'm a Gentile. You guys consider Gentiles to be dogs. I, I don't deserve to have you darken the door of my house. I need your help, but I don't deserve your help. You see the difference? This perspective that this pagan Roman soldier had, which the religious leaders lacked, they said to Jesus, he deserves your help. But through his friends, he said, I am not worthy of your help, but I need it. Do any of us dare approach God for help because we deserve it? Any of you feel like you deserved God's mercy because of the good person that you are, because of the things that you have done for the Lord, because of the money that you have given? Truth be told, if every moment of our lives was placed on a scale and we balanced out the good things that we have done against our bad, including our sordid thoughts that have clouded our minds, the scales will always tip in one direction, the wrong direction. We always fall short. That's what the Apostle Paul means when in Romans he said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have fallen short. None of us deserve Jesus' touch. Jesus did not come to heal us because we deserve it. He came to heal us because we were so sick. And out of His grace, out of His love, out of His mercy, out of His compassion, He came to heal us. And I think this is one of the hardest principles for Americans to wrap our heads around because we are so entitled. The words of those elders from Capernaum might come from the average American lips. I 
I expect God to do something good for me because I'm a good person. I've done good things for him. That is American Christianity in a nutshell. I'm a Christian because I'm a, I'm a good person. And it is so wrong. It is so spiritually arrogant. It is only when we can finally say, my life is messed up. I have screwed up. God, I can't imagine how you would want to come anywhere near me. It's only when we reach that point that we are starting to get it. Only when we are coming closer to the perspective of that centurion. We do not deserve Jesus' healing touch, but we need it. And the great news is that's all Jesus needs to hear. That's all he needs to hear. So I find the centurion's perspective to be remarkable and also his faith. His faith. Through his friends, he said, Jesus, just stay right where you are. You don't need to come into my house to heal my servant. Just say the word. He said, I'm a soldier. I know how to give orders. I know how that works. I tell one of my soldiers to go, and they go. I tell another soldier to come, and he comes. I tell a servant, do this, and he does it. Because I'm in authority over them. And Jesus, you are in authority over all things. I know that. You are in control. All you got to do is say the word, and my servant will be healed. Do you realize what just happened in those few little verses? This was a parable. This pagan Roman centurion told a parable through his friends because a parable is nothing more than a story out of your everyday life that has a spiritual truth to it. It is the only parable in the gospel that is told by someone other than Jesus. And it's told by a pagan Roman centurion. And do you see what Jesus' response was? Verse 9, I tried to underscore it as I read it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. He marveled at him. Another translation says, he was amazed at him. This word marvel is not an underused word for Luke. It's in fact one of his favorite words. He finds the whole story pretty marvelous. Up to now, chapters, first, the first seven chapters, he's already used this word six times. The shepherds marveled at the word of the angels. Mary and Joseph marveled when they saw 12-year-old Jesus teaching in the temple. The, the people in the synagogue at Capernaum marveled at the authority with which Jesus taught. Marvel, marvel, marvel. And, G, and Luke is not done. Through the rest of his gospel, he will use that word six more times. The disciples are going to marvel. The women at the empty tomb are going to marvel. Marvel is a, a favorite word of Luke's. It's not that unusual. But there is something unusual about this story because it is the only place in Luke where Jesus marvels. The only place and what does he marvel at? He marvels at the centurion's faith. Out of all the people that Jesus met and ministered to, the Jews and the Gentiles, the spiritual leaders and the spiritual outcasts, out of all of them, it was this pagan Roman soldier who is the only one that Jesus marvels at because of his faith. One commentator said, it must have been delightful to Luke who is the only Gentile writer in the New Testament, in the whole Bible, in fact. It must have been delightful 
to him to be able to report that the greatest expression of faith that Jesus ever found was in a Gentile, a pagan Roman soldier. I want us to dig a little bit deeper, though. The only other time in any gospel that Jesus ever marvels at something is in the gospel of Mark when he visits his hometown of Nazareth. There we read that Jesus could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. I might pause just a moment to say, that would be a pretty good day for me. No, just healed a few people. You know, it was kind of off. He was off his game, apparently, but that would be a pretty good game for me. And, and we go on to say, he marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus marveled at their lack of faith. So the only two times that Jesus marvels, both times are about faith. In one case, it was great faith. And in another case, it was no faith. So, since this probably ought to matter to those of us who follow Jesus, who have faith in him, we ought to ask, what is it about this man's faith that made it marvelous? I think it's this. He understood authority. This Roman soldier understood authority. Last week, I had a friend who told me of a recent meeting in which every other sentence that came out of one man's mouth in that group started with, as vice president of this company, as vice president of this company, do you know what you can be certain of when someone tells you how much authority they have? They don't have any real authority. They may have positional authority, but they have no real influence. Those who possess true authority don't have to remind anyone about it. It is known. It is known by the way they speak. It is known by the way they carry themselves. It is known by the way they comport themselves. It is known by the way that others listen to them and follow them. That's how you know that they have authority. This is, the centurion understood real authority. He knew it when he saw it. And we get, when he gave an order, he, he didn't wonder whether it was going to be done. He knew it would be done. And he recognized that authority in Jesus too. He knew that when Jesus commanded something, even if he couldn't see the outcome, he could be confident of the results. This pagan soldier understood the authority, the lordship of Jesus, better than any of his religious associates did. And I think... The heart of that comes out in the request that he made of Jesus, which, if we dig in a little deeper, we discover wasn't a request at all. He says to Jesus through his intermediaries, say the word and let my servant be healed. That phrase, say the word, is actually in the imperative form. In other words, in Greek, it's a command. It wasn't, will you please say the word Jesus, or Jesus, if you're willing to, I know you could say the word. Uh-uh. In the Greek, it's a command. Say the word, Jesus. Say it, and it is good as done. Does it make you a little squeamish to hear that someone was commanding Jesus to do something? But that is exactly what the Greek suggests. And it is here, in this remarkable combination that I think we find what Jesus described as marvelous faith, humility and audacity. Humility and audacity. On the one hand, he approaches Jesus with humility. He wasn't worthy to ask him to do anything. He knew that. He didn't deserve anything. 
But on the other hand, when he realizes Jesus is willing, he appeals to Jesus with audacity. He almost demanded something of him. Say the word. Heal my servant. And apparently, Jesus wasn't put off by this at all. Instead, he was amazed, astounded, marveled by it. It makes me wonder, do we, do we need to be more audacious in our prayers? Not more arrogant, but more audacious. Do we need to believe more in the power and authority of Jesus than we sometimes do? I think about this every time I tack on the words, if it be your will, to any of my riskier prayers for healing. I mean, I, I wonder if I don't do that as much as anything to, to save face just in case Jesus doesn't come through like I hope he will. And I realize that Jesus prayed those words in Gethsemane, thy will be done, but I still think that we can make this hour out for those of us who are too afraid to pray audaciously, which we ought to be praying, save my marriage, heal my child, defend my honor. We need to come to God in prayer. The way that my granddaughter, Cece, approaches me, she will walk over and she will grab my finger. She doesn't ask. She just grabs, and she will take me wherever she wants me to go, confident in her papa's love. Now, I don't have to do what she expects of me, and I certainly will never do anything that is not in her best interest, no matter how insistent she might be. But I love that she comes to me with great expectancy. And I think that sort of faith is represented in the book of Hebrews when we read, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This story about this pagan soldier, a pagan Roman soldier, I think it actually defines Christian faith. This combination of, of humility and audacity. We don't deserve a thing from God, but because He has accepted us, has called us to Himself, because we are His children and we, and we acknowledge His authority and we acknowledge His sovereignty, we, we can approach Him boldly, even audaciously. And that audacious, humble faith, Jesus finds to be marvelous. Does Jesus find your faith marvelous? Does he see in you a, that combination, that magic combination of humility and audacity that amazes him? Is he amazed with you as day by day and week by week and year by year you entrust more and more of yourself to him? Is he amazed by you that when he finds you facing adversity because you now know you have a champion on your side? Is he amazed that you deal with grievous loss because you know that the most important things in your life can never be taken from you? Is he amazed when you pray as if you really believe that God might answer those prayers? Is he amazed when you give as if you really believe that God will restore what you have given? Is he amazed when you love your enemies the way that God loved you? I don't want to be Nazareth. Who wants to be Nazareth? Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. I want to be like that centurion, don't you? I want to 
I want Jesus to look upon the people of Chapel Hill and say, wow, they have marvelous faith. They are humble, they are audacious, and they are faith-filled. They, they really believe in my power. They really believe in my authority. When they call me Lord, Lord, they actually do the things I tell them to do. I hope, I pray that Jesus is marveled by our faith. And I thought we might take one step closer to that marvelous faith by closing in our own time of prayer. So I'm going to invite you to do something that is a little out there. I want to invite you to come forward if you are able and kneel on these stairs and kneel in the floor and if you don't have room, kneel in the aisles and if you can't get out, kneel right where you are and let us declare anew the power, the authority of unmatched Jesus. Let us come before him in humility on our knees and audacity in our prayers. So I invite you to come and join me. Jesus, we want to be found with marvelous faith. We want to have faith that amazes you. We want to be people who come to you, first of all, humbly, knowing we don't deserve a thing. We have not earned your grace. We have not earned your love. We have not earned your mercy. What we have earned is wrath and judgment. And yet in your affection for us, in your love for us, in your grace toward us, you came. You came to save us and to call us to be yourself, to be your own. And so we kneel before you. We use the word Lord a lot, but often don't live as if you are Lord. We, in this moment, we remind ourselves and we declare before you, you are our Lord. You are our King. You have all authority. You created this universe and all that is in it. You are the king of this universe and all that is in it. You sit at the right hand of God the Father and you will one day call all of your creation to account as the judge of all that is right and good. So we kneel before you. We bow before you. But Lord, from this posture, then we dare to cry out in faith to you. There are things on your heart this day that are heaviest for you. Things that you may think are never going to change. A marriage that is so utterly broken you don't know how it could be restored. Someone has cheated you or cheated on you in such a way that you will never trust again. A health report that came back from the doctor this week that is so utterly bleak 
financial woes, children that are wandering away, grandchildren that have turned aside from you. These are the things that we, that we carry in our hearts. And this day, our Lord Jesus, with all authority and power, says, go ahead, give it a try. Call upon me, even command it. Call it out that this is what you want. Pray with audacity and see what I might do. So I invite you right now to find that thing in your heart that you most long for. And in the quiet of your heart, just call it out to the Lord. Beseech Him to do this thing. Beseech Him now. What an astounding thing, God, that you can hear every one of these prayers as if that we were the only one praying. It's not a cacophony to you. It is clear and personal and intimate. And so we, we offer our lives to you. We offer these audacious prayers to you. And we pray, Jesus, that you would do something astounding, that we would go home and we would discover that things have been made well that we thought would never get better. That's what we ask of you, Jesus. And we thank you that you are our King of kings and our Lord of lords. And we pray these things in your matchless name.
Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30. We hope to see you there. To learn more about our upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org.